This evening, then, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the great chapter on love. That's not what we find in 2 Corinthians 13. Not that we don't find the love of God, but that's not the chapter. Paul is writing uh, to this church at Corinth, the church that in uh, the first book, the first letter to the Corinthians, we find had many, many problems, lots of struggles. In the second book, we find that there has been improvement, and uh, Paul is pleased throughout this book to offer many uh, encouraging pictures and images for us of Uh, what it means to be the beloved people of God. But as he concludes this, he concludes again with some final warnings as he comes to them, uh, not wanting them, as it were, to rest upon their laurels, but uh, challenging them once again. But then he concludes this with uh, the, the beautiful benediction that we have in the 14th verse. 2 Corinthians then chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As far as the reading of God's breathed out word to us tonight, once again, bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word, for the blessings that we see in it, and pray that we too may see that Jesus Christ is in us, and we just pray for Pastor Bob as he 
brings this message to us that you would guide and lead him by your spirit, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So on the back of your sermon outline is Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. It gives you uh, all the statements that uh, we make in the confession in regards to the Trinity. Um, And it is not, as I mentioned last week, my intent to uh, call attention to those or to highlight those, but to give those to you each week so that you at home Uh, can not only uh, look at them, speak about them, look up the scripture passages uh, reflected there uh, to see the truth that is being given to us in that. Instead, we want to dive into scripture. And the point this evening is not to prove to you the Trinity. If uh, you are here as a skeptic uh, of one who, how can it be that one God can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My mind is not convinced. I have not seen any convincing proofs uh, of that. Well, you've come to the wrong place tonight for proof. Because we are reminded, even as we were reminded in regards to Scripture itself, that the only reason we come to the conclusion that Scripture is Scripture is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the only reason we can come to any sort of understanding and confession about the, the Trinity is not because we get our minds around it, not because we, we come to some great understanding of it, but it's because the Holy Spirit in our hearts convicts us of the truth of it as revealed in Scripture. So we want to go to Scripture tonight, and I just want to show you in a number of places this evening where Scripture demonstrates to us that God is triune. Then we want to secondly talk about some ongoing heresies that uh, are are present and have been present uh, all along in that regard. And then to come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and see this spiritual truth in this uh, last verse that God gives to us and the joy and the comfort and the delight that we as God's people can take uh, in that beautiful benediction that is given to us there. So first of all, the biblical teaching. And we start in creation because creation and Scripture's revelation to us about creation reveals to us the truth of a triune God. Scripture teaches us that. It's not because it's a statement in the Westminster. It's what Scripture tells us. And it actually tells us, and I know I've told this probably several times, and some of you know this by heart. Others of you, you go, never heard that before. So that's why sometimes ministers repeat these things. We see the evidence already of a triune God in the very first line of Scripture. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It's not in the beginning, Yahweh. It is in the beginning, Elohim. And the word Elohim, in and of itself, is plural. It's not a singular word. In the beginning, Elohim, God, in the plurality. 
but every other statement that is made about the actions of Elohim in Genesis chapter 1 is singular. So we really have a violation of what we would say in the English language. We're using a plural noun with singular verbs. That's what the Hebrew is doing to us in Genesis chapter 1. It's saying God, in the plurality, to use that term, acts in a singular fashion. Because he is one. So if we turn, for example, to the book of Malachi chapter 2. okay. So we're still dealing with the subject of creation. Notice Malachi, the end of the Old Testament here, chapter 2, speaks about God as the creator in verse 10. And he says, Have we not all one Father, and has not one God created us? Now there's multiple places we could go. But I found that in looking up all these verses, it pretty much hits the nail on the head. Have we not all one father? Not talking about Abraham. That's not who's being spoken of here. Okay? The ESV actually capitalizes father so we don't go there. Right? It, it, it's taking us to say that when we come to the second expression, has not one God created us, that the one God that is spoken of in the second part of the verse is the Father spoken of in the first. That the Father is the one who has created us. The Father is active in creation. You say, well, yeah, I always kind of knew that. Okay, that's good. But as we journey back to Genesis chapter 1, we come to the phrase, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Now a distinction has been made. Now Elohim is being distinguished by another, one other title, no longer as Elohim, but in the singular, the Spirit. And so we learn from that brief little section. That the Holy Spirit is there at creation as well. Not only the Father, but also the Spirit. So at the very beginning, at the very start of this created world and universe, Father and Spirit are at work. But if we go to John chapter 1, well, maybe we should do it. Let's see. Well, you're in Matthew, so let's go to John chapter 1. This page forward through the Gospels to John. We have those familiar words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Well, who's the Word? Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Who is the Word? Christ, Jesus Christ. Who is there at creation? The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. 
God is triune. Why do I believe it? Because I understand it? Because I can comprehend it? No. Because Scripture reveals to me. It tells me. And the Holy Spirit convicts me of the truth of these words that they're already at creation. Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work. But it's not only in creation. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Now we have the work of our salvation being spoken of. So in creation, the triune God is at work. Now we're going to see in our salvation, the triune God is at work. Start at verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Even as he, who is the he? The Father. Even as he... Or we could read, even as the Father chose us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before the Father. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the Father's will, to the praise of the Father's glorious grace, which He has given us in the Beloved. In that beloved, in Christ then, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained this inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What has Paul just done? He's explained salvation to us in verses 3 through 14. Who is involved in our salvation? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do I believe in a trinity? Because the Holy Spirit convicts me of the truth of Scripture. And Scripture tells me God is triune. Not only in creation but in my salvation. My salvation comes down to the work of Elohim, the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of which are essential, all of which are necessary, none of which can be left out of the picture. It is the work of God. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who brings about your and my salvation. Let's go to another passage, okay, and see how this applies in another area. Go to Matthew chapter 28. 
So we have the Trinity revealed to us in creation, pages of Scripture. We have our salvation revealed to us through the Trinity as the, as the work by the means by which our salvation comes. Now look at the church's work. Those who are saved, they have the work, they have the task as the church of Jesus Christ to go out into this world to proclaim the good news of salvation. That's our work. That's our ministry. That's what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But as we do so, okay, go to those familiar words that Jesus speaks as that great commission there in Matthew 28 all the way down now to verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. Notice that in the work of missions, that which is part of that work of missions is baptism. But the baptism is to be done in the name of the triune God. It's not a baptism if it's not done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an illegitimate baptism. Here's Jesus saying, church, when you go out, it is essential. See, this isn't some secondary thing. This isn't some secondary doctrine. This isn't something that is, that is, ah, you can take it or leave it. Or that's not really important. Is it? Isn't it really important what they believe about Jesus? Yes, it's very important what they believe about Jesus. And Jesus said he's part of the Trinity. And you can't have Jesus any other way. So when we go out in the work of missions, right, what, what should the work of missions be? Is it just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? Or is it Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because it would appear that Jesus wants us to emphasize the fact that we are baptized in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That just as creation Involve that work of Trinity, just as our salvation involves the work of Trinity, so does the work of missions. And if we do mission work that is neglectful of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we're really not doing mission work according to Jesus. We might be involved in some good works, we might be involved in some social changes. But we're not really doing missions unless it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mission. Because that's what the baptism is to be in. Now, to a certain level, that seems very plain and obvious, doesn't it? That, that, that's very straightforward. But this doctrine of the Trinity has always had ongoing heresy. Remember what that word means from this morning? 
okay? Right? Orthodox is the straight. Heresy is the side. So there have always been those in regards to the doctrine of the Trinity who have curved off on a tangent, who have gone away from the plain truth and plain teaching of Scripture. I didn't say we understood it and got it. I just said the plain teaching of Scripture, which the Holy Spirit convicts us of the truth of. So what are those heresies? Well, it started early, right? It starts, in in a sense, with Jesus and the Jews. They won't accept it. I and the Father are one. No way. No way. There is no way you and the Father are one. We reject that. In fact, we reject it so strongly... We want to kill you. We think you deserve to die for making that statement. The Jewish people reject the truth that Scripture reveals to us. And they've been doing it since Jesus came on the scene and proclaimed himself to be, I am. No, you're not. No, you're not. In other words, the Jews were willing to turn off the very first verse of Scripture and not even consider the implications of what Elohim means in the beginning. Here was the true path. It was laid out for them all the way. They took a divergent path. They went sideways, and they still do, except those who come to faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As a religion, they're off to the side. They don't believe in the Trinity. No, you're not the way. You're not the truth, and you're not the life. You're you're not one with the Father. We reject the straight teaching of the Word. But it persisted on. We have a guy by the name of Arius who leads into the teaching of Arianism that Christ is not eternal, that Christ is created and therefore he can't be God because he's a created being. Arius lives 256 to 336. We've got to have several church consuls, 325, 381, 431. Because of the various heresies that are coming up, the various tangents, the false teachings that are arising. Those of you in Sunday school this morning, we learned of several of those, but there were many more. That's why we recited this evening the words of the Nicene Creed. It was formed to combat These heresies that that went off on tangents that would not accept the divinity of Christ or the fact that God is triune. Because you see, as soon as you reject the idea that Jesus is divine, then you've rejected a triune God. And so the church continued to battle those heresies 
And we as the people of God stand even today and make those confessions. We recite those words of the Nicene Creed because they are important for today. They're not just important for the past, they're important for today. We, we stand and recite the, the words of the faithful Athanasius who stood in opposition to these false teachings. And we make that statement in our day and in our culture. Because you see, it's not just the Jews and it's not just those early church consuls that needed to meet. These things continue on. Want to know who all rejects the truth of the Trinity? Mormonism. Jehovah's Witness. Christian Science. Armstrongism. Christadelphians. The Unification Church. Oneness Pentecostals. The Way International. And I only submitted to you some of the more major ones. They all reject it. Don't fall for the lie. Do not fall for the lie. That somehow you can have salvation in Jesus Christ and yet reject that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. That's what your Mormon neighbor would have you believe. Oh, the Trinity isn't that important. The Trinity isn't in the Bible. The Trinity isn't taught in Scripture. It's a lie. And to trust in a Jesus who is not part of the Trinity, you're not saved. Nor are those Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on your door. Nor are those nice Christian science folks. Nice peaceful folks. They don't wag their fingers in your face. They don't knock at your door and disturb your Sunday afternoon nap. They just go to their reading room and read. They must be good people. They must be, they must be Christians, right? They deny the truth of who God is. Let us not be conned into, brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that somehow or another, just because they're nice makes them right. The church has battled and battled and battled and battled and battled for this truth, for this truth. The Heidelberg Catechism in dealing with the statements that are found in the Apostles' Creed make so bold a statement as to say, if you don't believe what's found in here, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Let's not compromise God's truth as he reveals it to us in his word. And those heresies, they continue today. And we need to be alert. We need to be understanding. We need to be mindful. We need how to speak into that world. We need how to speak to those individuals. For they too are those who need to hear the true gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
But let's come back then to this passage in Corinthians, right? Because we've just been, I mean, you know, we go through all this, and, and then I just concluded with this, wow, all this heresy. But let's come back to Scripture and just listen to the beautiful statement that we are given from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul. A beautiful benediction. But you know why it's so sweet? You know why it's so beautiful? It's because it's true. That's where the sweetness and the beauty come from. Look at the three things. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The scriptural truth is this. There is a gracious word for us. Look where this grace comes from. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've been talking in the last couple of weeks about the love of God. That God is love. The perfect love of God. Where do we see that? No greater love has any man than this, but that one would lay down his life. That's Christ. Christ is that fulfillment of all that is love. And here comes the pronouncement from Christ to you as a believer. Grace. Grace. You know what the word grace means in this context? It means the whole blessing of redemption. It's Jesus saying to you, may everything that I did, everything that I worked for, everything I gave myself for, may it all be yours. It's not for me, it's for you. I died not for me, but for you. I shed my blood not for me, but for you. I have peace with my Father. I died so you may have peace. I have assurance of my Father's love. I died so you may have that assurance. I'm going to go and be with my Father. I died so that you can go and be with the Father. All the blessings of redemption that Christ has at his disposal. The treasure house, the riches of his grace. He's coming to you and saying, that grace, that fullness of grace, that completeness of grace, that full experience of grace, Oh, that's what I want to bless you with today. That's what I want you to go home with. That grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, you guys stop and think, do you think the Father's stingy in what he gives to the Son? 
You think the Father is withholding? What does Jesus tell us a story about in, in the Gospels? But, but, you know, what father? His son asked him for bread, would give him a stone. He's not just talking about that earthly relationship. He's talking about his own father. Oh, the father has bestowed these riches upon him. And now Christ says, I don't want to keep them for myself. They're not for me. Here's my love. I give all of the blessings of redemption to you. May you experience as you go into this week, as you leave this place as the people of God, may you experience all the blessings of your redemption. Second, and the love of God. May the love of God be with you all. That love that we've been talking about, that love of fullness, that love of completeness. What a comforting word. That as we leave, the blessing is that, that we go into this week with that love. Being ours. That which God desires to show to us in this coming week. How about that for perspective? How about that for perspective as we go through this week and we face, face trials of various sorts and we face suffering and troubles of various sorts? How about that as perspective? Oh, but I remember Sunday night. I remember Sunday night that, that God sent me on the way with his love. This is God's love for me. He's molding and modeling me to be like Christ. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship the fellowship, the communion, the close companionship of. Jesus said that when he departed, he was going to send to us as believers the comforter, the one who dwells in us, the one who has such a close relationship to us that, that the Bible describes it as a living in us. A, a relationship that is so magnificent, so gorgeous, so beautiful that Paul describes it as we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. I get to go through the week not with a distant, far-off God. I go through the week with a God who dwells in me. With a God who lives in me. Not a God far off, but a God who is near. A God who is close. And somebody wants to tell me 
that the doctrine of the Trinity is unimportant? That the doctrine of the Trinity is secondary? That we shouldn't be so narrow-minded in regards to our teaching? No, my friends, the narrow-mindedness is not to believe. Because you see, when you understand the triune God, as revealed in the scripture, when you and I confess him as that triune God, that's not narrow. That's the grace. That's the love. And that's the fellowship of Elohim. At work in your life and in mine.